of various kinds, whether they be uh, choral groups or even pop artists, set aside all of their unbelief and sing these amazing hymns. They, they, they can't avoid the, the richness and the beauty of these hymns, and so they, they proceed to cover them anyhow. And I don't know if you've had this experience as well, but you'll, you'll hear a group singing these, and you'll be listening to the words and think, how can you sing this? How can you sing this and not embrace what it's saying? Well, why do we study the hymns? I fall into that camp. We can stand here and sing in worship, and our brains are anywhere else. We can stand here and sing in worship, and maybe those of us that love music are focused on the harmony. Am I getting the harmony right? Uh, we can focus on, am I, do I sound good next to my neighbor over here? The reason we study the hymns is so that we don't, we don't become like those, those that, that just sing without any understanding. That, that others might say, do they know what they're singing? So the, this hymn study is for us to understand, do we know what we're singing? So with that in mind, let's uh, open our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you that though uh, outdoors it is dreary, and yet in your house uh, it, is, it is radiant because you promise that you are with us. Lord, I pray that you would bless us now as we uh, contemplate your word as it is as it is taught us in these hymns lord help it to seal on our hearts with the the power of poetry and music and lord i pray that you would be glorified in all that is said in jesus name we pray amen okay so we are going to be talking about a beautiful hymn called lo how a rose air blooming uh <clears throat> One of my pet peeves is when this shows up in uh, hymn books as, Lo, how a rose is growing. Like, just destroy all of the, the uh, poetry. Just, you know, ditch it. No, Lo, how a rose air blooming. I don't have a theological reason to say that. It just sounds better. Um, <clears throat> the, the hymn originally is from Germany. Uh, the, the words would have actually been from the, the Catholics, and then in the, it was discovered around like the mid to late 1500s. And then a guy by the name of Michael Praetorius, his actual name was Michael Schulze, but if I had a name like Michael Schulze or I could be Michael Praetorius, I would definitely choose Michael Praetorius. Sounds great. So, uh, so the, Praetorius is just the Latin version of his name, Schulze. Um, but Michael Praetorius was the son of a Lutheran pastor. And so he he was himself evangelical and a, and a believer. And so he took this hymn that would have originally been to Mary, and he said, well, let's make it about Jesus. And he made it about Jesus. And it's, it's a, a beautiful hymn that we get to look at. Um, there's a lot that's unknown. We don't know who originally wrote the, the initial version that had 19 verses. Uh, Praetorius turned it into 23. Uh, we, we don't know who wrote the initial uh, tune either. It's, uh, it could be chant, it could be a folk song, it could have been a folk song that started as chant and then became a folk song. 
Basically, we just don't know a lot about this, or at least I don't. John probably has resources, John Reeves probably has resources that he could go and, and, and study. Uh, I didn't, so I would just encourage you, if you want to know more than I just said, read the Wikipedia page, because I tried to dig deeper and I just didn't find much that they didn't say. So with that, let's dive, oh, brief comment. Tim gave me some grief about, uh, about how much my hair has changed over the years, and I think this is going to be the new pursuit for facial hair, a new era. <clears throat> All right, so verse one opens the hymn with a poetic yet vivid picture. And in order to understand, we're gonna start at the end of the verse. Amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. As I was first thinking about this hymn, I thought about that particular uh, line, and I, I have to admit that I was somewhat derisively laughing to myself, oh, these Northern European hymns, <laughs> mid the cold of winter, come on, folks, that's so, that's so, you know, just your context. And then, somewhere in my subconscious, I felt Emily Rabel judging me silently for my lack of poetic sense. Uh, and then I was listening to Derek Thomas uh, speak about this, this hymn, and highlighted, this isn't about literally the cold of winter. This is, this is about not a season in terms of the season of the year, but this is about a season in terms of redemptive history amid the cold of winter. So the backdrop of this verse in particular, and really the whole hymn, and indeed Christmas, is, is desperately bleak. Imagine for a moment those pictures you see of World War I battlefields, no man's land. Try to, try to Im imagine that in your mind. There are barbed wire fences. There's mud, dead, rotting horses, trees that have been demolished by, uh, by, by artillery fire. Uh, you can see the, the, the fog of, of gases just rippling across the ground. Just to look at these images, even though we're not there, you almost, you almost can can feel the, the emptiness, the hollowness. That's the backdrop that we see. And it's, it's maybe a helpful image as we think about, uh, about Christmas as a whole, the need for the incarnation. It's less Hallmark and more Coen Brothers. Um, that is not an endorsement of Coen Brother movies, sorry. Okay, so this tender stem hath sprung. What is, what is this referring to? We could say it's about Mary, Surely she would fit the bill of a, of a tender stem, a young uh, virgin girl who, uh, who gave birth to Jesus. Um, but we'll get back to Mary in verse 2, and I think this has more to do with of Jesse's lineage coming. So let's, let's rewind a bit in history, and we're going to blitz through a bunch of, uh, of uh, Old Testament history. So bear with me. Immediately after man's fall, God began to reveal his plan of salvation. But he did so slowly. He didn't say, okay, Adam, sit down. Here we go. We're going to talk you through this. Instead, what we see in the Old Testament is God laying piece by piece the tiles of this grand mosaic. In the first tile we see in Genesis 3, God promises the serpent that he will be crushed. The serpent will be crushed by a child. That's humiliating. And that child would come from the very woman he deceived. 
he who laughs last laughs best. Generations multiply and fork into various branches. You can picture uh, a genealogy of, of just person, more people, more people, out and on and on. And we're asked, we have to ask this question. This is, there's a child that's been promised. Who is this child? When will he come? What line do we follow in these many forked generations? Well, Abel is a shining light. But alas, Abel is cut down by his brother Cain. God blesses Eve with Seth, and, and our hope is renewed. He's said to have had a, a more righteous line. And yet, his line is also corrupted. So Seth can't be the promised one. And his, his line is so corrupted that we, uh, that we see in Genesis 6 that the whole earth is bound for destruction. Except for one. Who is that? Noah, exactly. Noah is found to be a righteous man, blameless in his generation. However, Noah too proves to be a sinner. He's righteous in, in one sense in his generation, and yet he is still before God a sinner. But what we find is that this line, which God is drawing through the generations, is not defined by the perfection of that line, but rather God's own favor and faithfulness. So this pattern continues of more and more generations uh, and lines being chosen. Uh, but each, with each new generation, we ask, is this the one? Is this the one? We should be, as we read the Old Testament, we should be looking with expectation. Who, who is this? Who are we going to, uh, who are we ultimately going to find? Well, Abraham begets Isaac, Isaac begets Jacob and Esau, and we see a hint of which line, Jacob or Esau, should we choose? Well, we don't choose. Which should we trace? Well, Rebecca is told when she is pregnant, a hint that should help us understand. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So, as I like to, uh, like to you know, say loudly, the younger, Jacob, it's great, uh, <clears throat> is the one we're meant to follow. But notice that this is before we hear anything about Jacob's life, whether he was uh, a rapscallion or a great guy. And that's, that's a, a key. It's not about Jacob. It's about God's choosing. And it's a good thing it's not about ultimately Jacob because we find that he's a pretty slimy guy sometimes. So Jacob has many sons. Joseph is both his favorite and certainly the most righteous of the brothers. He's also elevated to a, a, a position of great power in Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh himself. And so we might think, is Joseph the promised one? Is, is he the one that's going, to, uh, that's going to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3? Well, no. Um, but we see a hint for that as Jacob blesses his sons. Uh, in Genesis 49, Jacob is going through each of his 12 sons, uh, including, uh, uh, but also includes Joseph's too. And he says, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here again, amongst all of Jacob's sons, we find the new line that we need to start tracing. It's Judah. But again, Judah is a rather shocking choice. The next one in line, Perez, is fathered by Judah because he sleeps with his son's wife. Look it up later. It's, Judah is not a shining example of, of a line you might want to choose, and yet we see God doing that anyhow. The thread continues through Ruth and Boaz, and we, we hopefully know the beautiful story of Ruth and Boaz. And at the, end, the very end of Ruth, in this beautiful cliffhanger, we read, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that's the end of the book. Then we get to Samuel, 1 Samuel. And like good storytelling, we just lose the thread of Jesse and David. We suddenly come to learning about Samuel and how, he's, uh, how he grows to be a prophet. Then uh, Israel is clamoring for a king like the nations. And so God chooses Saul to be that king from among the nations. And the people wanted a king like the nations, and they got just that. So at first, Saul seemed promising. Uh, God did choose him for this purpose, after all. But something should immediately stand out. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. But we already saw that the scepter is not going to depart from which line? Judah. So already we should be thinking, hmm, we're not quite there. Tragically, Saul proves that that is correct. He is, he is not the promised one. He is, uh, he is rejected from the kingdom. And as Samuel, who seems to have loved Saul, is still grieving over his rejection, God sends him to Bethlehem. And where is Bethlehem? Judah. Where does he send him? To a man named Jesse in order to anoint the future king of Israel. Well, Jesse parades all of his sons before them. Is it this one? Is it this one? Surely it's that one. And no, none of them. Finally, he asks, okay, is this, is this everybody? Well, there's David. He's off, you know, with the sheep. <laughs> well, he tells him, bring him. And he arrives, and the Lord tells Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And that should send a little shiver up our spine. This is he. <clears throat> so David, David might be the one. And we read of David's life, and, and what is the constant refrain about David? He was a man after God's own heart. Is David the man? Is David the promised one? Well, sadly, no. Though innocent before Saul, not even David is innocent before God. He is but a man. And we see that in repeatedly throughout his life. After David has been king for some time, he's sitting in his house and he's thinking, I have more comfort than the Lord. I'm in a house with cedar. The Lord is in a tent. I'm going to build a house for God. But God sends his prophet Nathan to respond with what his plan is, not David's. And we get this beautiful uh, covenant that is, uh, that is given to David. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I want you to notice some of these phrases. I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Are we getting the idea? This is a forever kingdom. This is, this is going to last. Well, <clears throat> we see that partially fulfilled in Solomon, David's son. Solomon builds the temple to the Lord. Um, but ultimately, we see that he's not the promised one either. Maybe more starkly than, uh, than we see that with David, because he's, he's taken astray by his 700 wives who are from foreign nations and, and, and lead him to idols. He is but a man. Solomon's sin results in the kingdom of Israel being torn apart via his son Rehoboam's folly. And the next roughly 380 years of Davidic kings is a long, depressing, downward trajectory of, and he did evil in the sight of God. There are certainly some exceptions, Hezekiah, Asa, and others, but those are sadly small blips on an increasingly more dire situation. The final king, Zedekiah, is a puppet king who is set on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar to replace his brother Jehoiakim. And he proves also to be a man who did evil in the sight of the Lord. But encouragingly, Jehoiakim's name is the Lord establishes. So even as this line that seems to be withering away is coming to a close, we're reminded God establishes. This is yet God's line, not man's. But then, this was staggering to me to, to look at a timeline. We wait six, nearly 600 years, about 580 years or so, between the last Davidic king and Jesus. Nearly 600 years. That's longer than the Davidic kings were on the throne. Surely, from tender stem hath sprung, hits the nail on the head. Amid the cold of winter, when half spent was the night. This is a sad, depressing time. Until at, at Jesus' time, after this 580-odd years, who's on the king? Uh, who's on the throne? Herod, not a Davidic king, a wicked, cowardly man who is also a puppet to a pagan empire. And then we see it came a floweret bright. Amid, amidst that, that bleak landscape, that World War I no-man's land, there's, there's a stem that's, that's growing, and we should start to get excited. As men of old have sung, uh, it's hard to see at this moment in history, uh, but we know that God has established his throne forever, and we know for a fact that, uh, that it will be but do we know, rather, for a fact, that this Davidic line is going to be the promised one that we had in Genesis 3? Well, as the hymn says, men of old sang of this, and it's true. We see hints of it in both Psalms 89 and 132, reassuring that God is establishing David's throne forever. Uh, to look at a few examples, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, that's uh, Jesse is an Ephrathite of Judah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. 
Let us worship at his footstool. It's hard to apply that to a mere man. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of, your, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. There, speaking of Zion, I will make a horn to sprout from David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Jesus uses Psalm 110 to argue with the Pharisees that the Messiah would be both David's son and David's Lord. Psalm 2 is a psalm which most immediately would have applied to David and yet is really speaking of the, 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 the promised one who will ultimately sit on the throne and crush uh, the enemies of God. And the writer of Hebrews repeatedly uses Psalm 2, applying it to Jesus. So men of old did indeed sing of, uh, of this promised one coming from Jesse's lineage. But then, as verse 2 suggests, we get greater clarity in the prophets, specifically in Isaiah. Isaiah uh, 11 is, is, is really our, our key passage. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. That, didn't, that almost applied to Solomon, but if we read Ecclesiastes, he wouldn't even say ultimately of himself. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We see greater clarity of this, this line of David, this lineage of Jesse, is indeed going to be the promised one of Genesis 3. Given the tragic history of Israel that we just saw, verse 12 of chapter 11 is particularly encouraging. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What a comfort that would have been to the, the faithful people of God who were dispersed because of the folly of those previous kings. Micah 5.2 also prophesies of the one to come in David's line. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is amazing because it brings us back full circle to Samuel. Where does Samuel go? To Bethlehem of Judah. Where, where does Micah take us? To Bethlehem of, doesn't say it specifically, but of, well, it does, of the clans of Judah. We're taking full circle. And now, and what are we looking for? We're not looking for uh, just a, a, an earthly king. Now we're looking for the promised one. So in light of these rich prophecies, we should be in awe of God's faithfulness. We should be in awe of his mercy. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised when we, after, six, after 580 years, see the, the line of David continuing. Now, <clears throat> again, as I said earlier, this hymn was originally uh, written to Mary from a Catholic perspective. And so with that, it may have been, Isaiah was foretold, it may have been referring to Isaiah 7, where we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, if that's the case, no matter. We don't have to sweat it. Isaiah 7 is also in the Bible, and it's beautiful. So God, G Isaiah did foretell 
of a virgin birth. And while this hymn is rightly focused on Jesus, as this passage itself is, um, we, we don't ignore Mary's role. We don't, uh, uh, we don't cast this virgin mother kind aside. Much canon should be said uh, about Mary. Gabriel greets her, O favored one. Uh, Elizabeth uh, greets her by saying she's blessed among women. The song that she sings, known as the Magnificat, is a lesson to all of us in rich prayer. She's saturated in scripture, and she didn't have a copy as a result of the Gutenberg press existing. She, she would have meditated on God's word, and she beautifully uh, sings that word into song. But I want to focus on one thing. With Mary, we behold it. So we would do well to follow Mary's example of contemplation, of meditation, of beholding. On multiple occasions, uh, Mary is said to have, quote, treasured up all these things in her heart. Another passage says she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Again, from the contents of the Magnificat, surely she would have been pondering God's word, God's promises uh, in her heart. And I would ask us, myself included, do we meditate on God's promises? Are they our food by night and by day? Do we go to sleep thinking about God's promises? Do we wake up meditating on his word? Do we, uh, do we come to worship seeking to stop and behold the, the wondrous God that we have? Do we behold Jesus as it says we do with Mary? With Mary, we behold it. Do we? To show God's love aright, she bore to men a Savior. So God is love. And his love towards us is manifold in all of his works. He has a love for creation in a, in a general sense, and he has a love for us in a special sense, his people. And so we could see his love in any number of things that he does for us. We could, we could look at the, the warmth that we can enjoy and say, ah, God loves us, and it's true. We could look at our families and, and what a blessing it is to be in families and think, oh, God loves us, and it's true. We could think about the food we're able to eat, the bodies and health that we have, any number of things. Uh, but how do we rightly see God's love? That, that's what this uh, stanza is about, to show God's love aright. Where do we see God's love aright? Well, Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is so great that any, anything, anything less than this would not show God's love aright. Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, than one should lay down his life for his friends. God goes to great lengths to show us his love. And that's why Jesus was born of Mary. That while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. Verse 3 uh, is a retelling of Luke 2, uh, verses 8 through 20. We read in verses 15 through 17, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened 
which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told of them concerning the child. Now, after 580 plus years, one wonders if anyone was, uh, if most people were like Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Or had it just been so long that they petered out? If I'm honest, in my own strength, I would have petered out a long time ago. I peter out if I don't see fulfillment of my expectations in a day. I mean, if, if I, yesterday, things didn't go to plan in the morning at all. And I was bummed. Uh, <clears throat> 580 years of waiting for the consolation of Israel. Was anyone even looking expectantly? Did the, shepherds, uh, did the shepherds see this long-expected one? When the angels appeared to them, did they say, ah, yes, this is what we've been looking for? I don't know. But even if they didn't, how do we see them respond? Immediately, with haste. They didn't say, wait, what are you talking about? No, they responded to the word of the Lord from his angels and went. And they go to find him. And what did they do when they saw the Christ laying in human form in a feeding trough? They worshipped. And then they didn't say, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Angel, did we get to the wrong address? Like, this cannot be the king. This cannot be the savior that those angels were telling us about. No. They saw Jesus in the manger. And what did they do? They went out and they told anyone that would listen about what they had seen. More specifically, they told everyone who would listen what the angels said about this child. They were the first heralds of, you might think this is just a baby, but it's not. This is the Savior promised to Israel, promised to the world. They did what we've been hearing about in, in Acts. They gossiped the gospel. They went out and immediately started gossiping the gospel. Verse 4 transitions us from historical poetry. We're learning about uh, the, the prophecies that have led to this. We're learning about Mary uh, giving birth to Jesus. We're learning about the shepherds responding to this glorious news. And now we, we transition to rich theological poetry. We now are, are going to, to reconcile with who is Jesus. So this flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air. Jesus, fairest among 10,000, from the moment of his birth, would have been a sweet fragrance. By which I don't mean he never was stinky. By which I don't mean that he never cried. By which I don't mean that, that he wouldn't, there wouldn't have been sleepless nights. But he would have been a sweet fragrance because he had no sin. Think of, if you have children, think of how how much joy wells in your heart when you see them when you see them being kind to whether they're siblings or other people or, or you see them you see them being at peace or joyful it I, when i see phoebe smiling at someone that she doesn't know at all it's like i'm just so proud of her in that moment now imagine that experience with a child that had no sin it's hard. It's just really hard to imagine. I don't know if we can fully. So, so Jesus was 
uh, was at the moment of his birth a sweet fragrance. Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and where there is light, there can be no darkness. John says of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Which leads us to the next stanza. Dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. Jesus' miracles are visible images of spiritual realities. Jesus' miracles are visible images of spiritual realities. When Jesus enters the scene, what happens to the darkness? Fades away. And and the beauty of, of Jesus' works when he was walking on earth is that we can see that, uh, they could see that with our eyes and, and with their eyes, and we can see it with our eyes of faith as we read the word. When Jesus touches the unclean, anyone else touching the unclean becomes unclean themselves. What happens with Jesus? They become clean. When Jesus is in the, is in the presence of demons, what do the demons do? They beg, please do not torment me. Why are you here? This It's not your time. I've got more time. No. Jesus comes and the demons demons writhe in discomfort. He makes the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. Darkness and the effects of sin flee before Jesus. Dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God. This is reminiscent of the the Nicene Creed. The problem with all the previous Davidic kings, they had two major problems. Can you tell me what they were? What? They were men and they were sinners, exactly. They were sinners and they died, is another way of putting it, right? They were mortal. We see many of them, if they weren't said to have, uh, to have, done evil in the sight of the Lord, we still hear about their warts. And without fail, righteous and unrighteous, the repeated refrain is, and he slept with his fathers, and he slept with his fathers, and he slept with his fathers. As the the sacrifices had to be renewed every day to come before God, a new king had to be found and put on the throne every X number of years. Uh, because each one died. But the God-man, Jesus, was without sin, and so death had no power over him. Rather, he laid down his life willingly. No one took it from him. Death didn't come to him as it comes to all man. He laid down his life willingly. And because death held no power over him, he didn't stay in the grave. It could not hold him. He was raised from the dead. Furthermore, Jesus, the God-man being infinite alone, is able to bear the infinite weight of our sin, both as a race and as individuals. So he deals with the problem of death and sin. From sin and death, he saves us. When does a flower most fill the air with its fragrance? How do you, how do you get the smell out of an herb? You crush it. So we see in Isaiah 53, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Yes, he would have been fragrant and sweet because he was sinless and he was, he was Lord. 
But where do we see that sweetness most especially? It's it's on the cross as he's being crushed for our sins. Enlightens every load. Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what today is. That's what Sabbath is. It's reminding ourselves that we have the Sabbath rest. We, we, can, we can rest in Jesus. All of our labors from our weary and heavy ladenness uh, are, are laid on Jesus. So, so do we rest? Do we cast our burdens on Jesus? As our, as our vows state, do we receive and rest on him alone for our salvation? Verse 5 takes the doctrine of true man yet very God and intimately applies it to our lives. It says, this is a glorious truth. Now, how, how does this affect you in the, in the here and now daily? O Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe. As a child of Mary, Jesus is truly man. And as such was subject to all of our human woes. Isaiah 53 refers to Jesus as the man of sorrows, one despised, and who we did not esteem. Uh, John echoes this in the prologue to the gospel. He says that that, uh, he came to the world, he came to his own, and they did not know him. In Luke 9, Jesus says of himself that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of God, the Son of God has, excuse me, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. John 4 reports that Jesus was wearied with his journey. John 11 shows us a striking image, Jesus weeping, which should be a special comfort to us this week as we've just lost two of our dear congregants. And as as their family members, as friends, weep in the face of their death, Jesus, too, wept for his friends. Jesus has felt their human woe. And the beautiful thing is, one day Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye, but he's also known those tears as he wipes them away. He knows what it is to weep. O Savior, King of glory, who dost our weakness know? What a juxtaposition. Savior, King of glory, how can you put weakness in the same thought as Savior, King of glory? Well, it's echoing Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2 verse 18 explains further why this should comfort us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Savior, King of glory, is able to intimately walk with us, come come alongside us, empower us by his Spirit as one who has suffered as we have, who has been tempted as we have, who has known uh, our weaknesses. And then we come to bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and to the endless day. So we know that to live is Christ. And because of Christ's work, we can genuinely love life on this earth. We can can embrace it. We can 
seek to, to minister to others. We can say to live is Christ. But don't we still long to be freed of sin? Don't we still long to be uh, to, to no longer have tears? Don't we still long to, to no longer have our, uh, our sin taint every good thing that we, that we involve ourselves in? And so we, we say, bring us at length, we pray, into the bright courts of heaven. And for Bill Freeman and, and Miss King, he's done just that. He preserved them all their years, and he brought them finally home to the bright courts of heaven. But something that Pastor David brought out in, in Bill's funeral service that really stood, stood out for me is that they, too, are longing for something. They in heaven are, are certainly in a better state, and yet they still long for that endless day. They long for that day when the saints are no longer under the, the altar we see in Revelation saying, How long, O Lord? They long for that day when their bodies will be once, once again reunited with their souls and that they can, they can see Jesus with physical eyes. They can, they can sing praises with physical tongues. That's the day we ultimately look forward to. Even when, if the Lord doesn't come before we die, we'll be in heaven longing for that endless day when we'll sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, marriage feast, and we will live with Christ forever. What a glorious hymn to walk us through this full spectrum of history to present comfort to future glories. So let's sing this hymn together. Uh, it's on page 221, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your promises, that you, you established your word and no matter how it looks from our human eyes, it is sure. It is definite. Lord, I pray that we would have great faith, that we would be like Simeon, longing for that endless day, that we wouldn't grow tired or weary as we wait on you. But instead, Lord, we pray that you would help us to behold Jesus, that we would see him in your word as it is preached to us this very day, that we would sing with, with mindfulness as we sing praises to you. And as we pray to you, Lord, I pray that we would join our prayers with whomever is praying, that we would give you praise and glory and honor. Lord, we pray that you would bring us at length into the bright courts of heaven. Preserve us, O Lord, and would you use the means of worship to help us on our path. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.